Have you ever struggled with doubts about the reliability of the Bible? Maybe you've heard an interview with a famous skeptic, read a book filled with challenging questions, or had a disconcerting conversation with a non-Christian friend or family member. We've all been there, and we all know what it's like to feel like our trust in God's Word has been shaken. In our interview today, I'm throwing as many of those tough questions as I can at Bible scholar Peter Williams. Peter serves as principal at Tyndale House in Cambridge, England, an international research institute home to one of the world's most advanced libraries for biblical scholarship. He's also the chair of the International Great New Testament Project and the author of Can We Trust the Gospels from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining me again on the Crossway podcast. Pleasure to be with you. So in my experience, most Christians, I know I've been here before, at some point in their lives, they have questions and maybe even doubts about the reliability of the Bible. Uh, I think we, whether from our own thinking about these questions to just hearing skeptics, prominent skeptics, atheists in the media questioning the Bible, explaining all these problems with the Bible, it's easy for us to kind of start to, to wonder, mm-hmm. can I really trust this? And you've spent decades studying the Bible in the original languages. You're a well-known Bible scholar. And so today we thought we'd ask you some common questions that Christians often wrestle with when it comes to the reliability of the Bible. So question number one, we don't have access to the original manuscript, so how can we be sure that what we're looking at is accurate? Yeah, I think... Um when people say we don't have access to the original manuscripts, I'd say, so what? Actually, we don't really care about the original manuscripts. Got to explain explain that. that. Yeah, because um, a manuscript is just a physical thing. God didn't give physical things. He gave words. So what we are concerned about are the words that God has given, which were written on the physical things. Mm. But when those words are copied from one physical thing to another physical thing, they don't lose their godness. Um, so there's nothing more given by God about the, uh, the original physical copy than any subsequent copy. And, and I think this is where we've got to re- realize that God speaks words. He doesn't speak papyrus mm. or leather. So th- this is where one of the problems has happened in the way our people articulate things that people talk about, for instance, the original text the word text is ambiguous it can mean the wording or it can mean the physical thing and we're only interested in the wording so when people say we don't have access to the original manuscripts i don't care i want to know do i have access to the original wording Hmm. and the answer is of course i have access to the original wording because it got copied Hmm. Uh, you know so it's a bit like anyone hearing this podcast is not hearing my voice they're hearing a copy of my voice a copy of a copy of a copy of my voice it's happened so many times do they have access to my words yeah sure they do are they in this room right now no yeah so that that maybe naturally then leads into the follow-up question to that would be okay so yes what we're interested in are the are the words themselves not the physical papyrus say that the mm-hmm. apostle paul wrote something on however the reason that we're interested in that papyrus is because we would have confidence that um, when Paul was inspired to write those words, he was accurate in that first writing them down. How do we have confidence in the accuracy of all those copies? Yeah, okay. So, so what I'd say is this is a sort of false dilemma people are presented with nowadays because it's a bit like saying, unless I have access to the actual recording on the camera capturing the sports game, I have no access to the sports game. 
that's what that that's sort of what that thing is. Yeah. We don't really care what happens to the original recording on the TV cameras themselves. I mean, who's going round nowadays saying unless I have Peter Jackson's original camera mm. on which this particular shot of the Lord of the Rings was caught, I have no access to this. I mean, this is insane. Mm. So we live in a culture which is surrounded by copying. The whole economy is based on copying. Yeah, the internet itself is, yeah. is a bunch of copies. The, the, of the whole thing. And somehow, when it comes to the Bible, people are starting having this angst. All of these different civilizations that have been, you know, since the time of the Romans have had copyists. That's what people did. That was their job. There's a whole economy is based on that. And so this idea that we have no access to things because it was copied is simply insane. And so I want to call that out pretty strongly Mm. and say we should stop having um, an anxiety about something in one area when we don't have that anxiety in other areas. So I think the response to that could be, you know, when it comes to a sports broadcast where the copying is happening digitally, we have a sense for how that works and we, we, we have an implicit trust in the accuracy of that, generally speaking. However, I think the, the response of the skeptic is often on this front. Well, have you ever played the game Telephone, where you have humans yeah, involved sure. passing a message along and by the time you get to the end, it's totally distorted from what it once was. So yeah. why is that not what's going on with the Bible? Well, firstly, the Telephone game is a game which is an artificial game deliberately created in order to get the message corrupted. You can't just play it with two of you or three of you. You probably need 10. Someone's got to whisper the message. They're only allowed to whisper it once to one person. Mm. So in other words, you stack everything in favor of getting corruption. It's very artificial, very bad analogy. And what I'd say is when when you say we understand about copying today, you know, yes, we do. We don't worry about the fact that on our cell phones and all sorts of other ways that we're we're communicating, there is, I don't know how many 30 steps or how, how many steps are there between me and the person I'm talking to? I have no idea. Uh, and so I'd say actually sort of we don't know, but there's just this general confidence. So what happens is somehow people start getting skeptical about scribes. Like scribes job was to copy. Mm. Now, just as when you're watching a sports match, we know that the tech exists that someone could CG falsify what you see. Right. And you could be sitting in your house watching a sports match and what you see is falsified and your neighbors might see something different. But you know that isn't going to happen because that would cost a huge amount of money. So that's why you're pretty confident that's not going on. It's exactly the same with copying from the ancient world. If you wanted to copy a a Bible, let's say, which takes about a year to copy out. Mm, wow. And if it's going to be on leather, well, how many animal skins is that going to be? Is that going to be 300 animal skins? Now, just think about the economic price of that to falsify one Bible. And people are going to tell me, oh, yes, loads and loads of Bibles are being falsified the whole time. And this is what everyone's doing. Give me a break. This is as insane as the idea that, you know, every single video of Zelensky going around Ukraine is being falsified. Mm. No, it can't. Just the budget would blow your mind to do that. So what I'd say is you've got to think realistically, and and we've just got to educate people to think about how texts arrive to us. Of course someone could falsify something, but falsifying a bit of one copy isn't going to create a whole load of 
descendants of that copy mm, which affect yeah. everything in the world. So Christianity is it's spread out uh, around the place. If, let's say, in one town in the Roman Empire, people start falsifying copies, well, guess what? There are all the other towns and places where things are being copied. Yeah. And that's why you guys are, as, as Bible scholars, are comparing these different manuscripts and fragments, and you're able to kind of identify places where more than uh, intentional falsifying there's just little mistakes sometimes that you that yeah sure and, and we also know that when you copy electronic files there's a small level of corruption that happens into the text in into the the um, copies over time and we know that doesn't affect the general integrity mm. of electronically copied files yeah so i'd want to say that generally literature from the ancient world whether it's in chinese or arabic or hebrew or greek or whatever it is it's generally well transmitted and this idea that one person might falsify it isn't going to have enough effect to falsify the whole transmission yeah all right question number two doesn't the bible contain hundreds of internal contradictions that's a really interesting uh, question so i mean i actually get a little chapter in my book can we trust the gospels on what I think are deliberate contradictions in John's gospel. And I think Jesus himself taught with contradictions. So good teachers can use contradiction to convey information, to get you to think more deeply. Now, I don't want to say, I think scripture is written so that if you seek God, you will find him. And if you don't seek, you will stumble. Hmm. That means that there are bits in it which are very clear to understand and there are bits in that which are more tricky sometimes when people say there are contradictions what they're saying is something like the same word is used in two different ways well that's just normal if you don't mm. want to have dictionaries which are too big and you want to make language learning impossible then you use words in more than one way other things you can have going on in the bible is there can be changes of deal now I could paraphrase the words Old Testament and New Testament to be Old Deal and New Deal, as in there are different arrangements that God has for different times. Mm. And so people can call that a contradiction, because the fact that the arrangement has changed once Christ arrives to what's before. Those sorts of things. So there are plenty of opportunities for tension, and if people want to find fault in the Bible, they're going to find plenty of reason to do so. But then the flip side is... I think scripture is written with an amazing unity, amazing harmony across it. And as I've researched it more and more, I found more and more coherence and things mm. hold together. The fact is, yes, there are puzzling bits, as there are puzzling bits in an advanced crossword or a really difficult Sudoku, and that's okay. We're dealing with an omniscient God. He knows everything, and he set plenty of challenges there. So I think... Part of it is just coming to Scripture with the right attitude. Yeah. Have there been situations or contradictions, seeming contradictions, that that puzzled you maybe for a while, but then at some point as you looked more co closely at them, spent more time studying, you kind of, oh, something opened up and you, you thought, oh, actually, that doesn't really bother me anymore. I, th I think certainly there have. I think a lot of it is where you realize that you've accepted some assumption about something and that's given you problems later on so i think that that's what happens yeah all right question number three doesn't the writing style of various books change throughout those books 
suggesting that the book was compiled by maybe multiple people over the course of many different years, sometimes when the book itself seems to say that it was written by, say, Moses. So I think the writing style can change within a book. And, I mean, you just have to think of some of um, Tolkien's uh, things like The Hobbit, where there is a different style in the songs and the poems than there is in the prose. So the fact that there's a change of style doesn't mean that it's by different authors. In fact, you can take someone like J.K. Rowling, a famous author, who's written kids' books, teenage books, and adult books. And right. guess what? They have really different styles. And when she writes in magazines, essays, it's a different style again. So the problem for anyone saying, because there's two styles here, they can't be by the same author, is I want to know what are your parameters, what are your criteria for deciding two styles equals two authors? Mm. I've got different styles of handwriting I can use in different settings. I've got different styles of writing. I mean, my, when I write an academic article, it's got a different writing style from my emails, uh, a different <laughs> different writing style from my thank you letters. I mean, this is... I'm struck that in this example, and maybe even going back to the, the issue of the transmission of Scripture through the centuries, do you ever feel like when people come to the Bible... There's kind of a different set of rules yep. in how they assess, is this trustworthy? What are the rules of the road for how we hold uh, the Bible to certain standards? Yeah, so I think uh, often people are, are starting with a sort of, it's guilty until proven innocent. Mm. They're starting with a hermeneutic of suspicion, you could call it. And often, it, it, you know, it's a case of junk in, junk out. If people start with that skepticism, they will find all sorts of evidence to back that up. I mean, at the end of the day... Uh, the scripture books come to us as coherent wholes. I mean, take something like Genesis, an example, and people have found different sources in Genesis. There's a tremendous unity running through that. And so I'd want to say that's the most prominent thing that mm. you, I, as I read those 50 chapters of Genesis is the fact that there are themes of um, blessing uh, going through. There are characters that run through. There are plot lines that run through. And if people want to say, well, there's a bit of a change of style here and there, often it's that they haven't set their gauge right. Uh, you, you've got to have a sufficiently broad sense of what can be one style. The other thing is, of course, as a Christian, we're, we don't have to think that there's only one human author that contributes to a book. God has different ways of getting scripture written. Uh, so there's also no objection to mm. some of these books having been written by more than one person. Many books in the Old Testament are not named. I would just say, though, that you can't really know uh, where, if there were sources, one source ends and the other begins. That's so that, And I don't think it's a very fruitful thing to spend a lot of energy on because you're not going to know. Yeah, that actually leads into my next question is how can we treat the Bible as reliable when we don't know who actually wrote most of the books. I think that's like, you know, there's an intuitive sense of if I find, you know, some article, newspaper article purporting to claim some true fact about something that's happened, but there's no author name there. I don't know who wrote it. We would naturally be pretty skeptical that like, oh, why would I trust them then? I think often uh, the lead articles in newspapers, the front pages, don't have an author on. Mm. Uh, and we tend to treat them as generally reliable if they're a newspaper that we like so i think this idea that i need to know who wrote it in order to have confidence is a bit odd so i'd say with 
say the books of Samuel and Kings are very interesting, particularly the books of Kings, because they report about kings and you can check them archaeologically at all sorts of points. But also, one thing very clear is the authors who wrote those books were not in the pay of the kings. Yeah, I mean, they're criticizing in, them all the they're time. They're criticizing them all the time. So you can compare that with a typical Egyptian monument and the ones put up by Ramses are going to tell you how good Ramses is and the ones put up by Amenhotep are going to tell you how good Amenhotep is and it's the same with other kings of the surrounding nations and there's no national literature that critiques the people group from which it comes as much as the Old Testament does with the Israelites so I'd want to say that there's a good sign of trustworthiness mm. and I don't need to know exactly who wrote it there are all sorts of anonymous reports that we get in official contexts nowadays. Uh, you don't know who wrote this particular thing. I don't think th that means we can't see trustworthiness. Mm. I think trustworthiness is something that can be seen in all sorts of ways. Yeah. All right, question number five. The biblical writers had a pre-modern, unscientific view of the world. So how can we trust them to accurately rep record what actually happened? It's an interesting statement. So I want to say that they had, when you say unscientific, I'd, I'd maybe choose non-scientific. They weren't thinking in our sort of modern scientific way, but that doesn't mean that they weren't thinking in terms of measuring things and the reality of things. And when you get a description of the temple in First Kings and it describes how many cubits this wall is, whatever, that seems to be... It's pretty pre precise. Yeah, it, it overlaps with the genre that we might have today of architectural plans. So it's not that there's a complete discontinuity. And I'd want to say you, you can you can test the Bible at, at many points and see its reasonable nature. And then I'd also want to say that we need to recognize that cultures can be very scientifically advanced in some ways and pretty immoral. I mean, the, the Nazi scientists in the 1930s uh, were technically advanced mm. in many ways right. and yet very immoral. Science can't tell you even that science is valuable. So science can't give you values. Yeah. And so you need values in order to do science. That's where actually scripture arguably feeds into the scientific project because it gives you a reason to seek meaning in the universe and to seek to find out mm. things and a lot of people a lot of christians will claim that yeah the uh, christian worldview what really gave rise to the scientific yeah, method yeah. And, and science as we know it today i don't think there's a, lot, there's a lot in that mm. all right another question doesn't the old testament in particular borrow many of the pagan myths of the ancient near east the most famous perhaps being the story of the flood yep and so that would kind of call into question then that is this authentic uh, scripture from God, revelation from God, or were these, these ancient people just kind of borrowing and tweaking what other pagans around them were saying? So what I'd say is when people say X has borrowed Y, they need to demonstrate it. So clearly there are links between Mesopotamian flood stories and the one in the Bible. And one of the clearest parts of that is when it talks about birds being sent out, mm, uh, wow. both in the Mesopotamian flood story and in the biblical one. But what I'd want to say is when people say one has, uh, the biblical one has borrowed, often what they're doing is they're saying, because our physical copy of the Mesopotamian one is older than our physical copy of 
the biblical one, the biblical manuscripts are later, therefore one is borrowed from the other. But that's confusing the age of the um, medium on which something is transmitted with the age of the wording itself. And this can lead you to wrong conclusions. So actually there's a guy called Irving Finkel who um, discovered an old Babylonian flood, tub flood tablet and he was absolutely amazed when he was reading this text from 1600 BC or thereabouts when he suddenly saw in that text talk about animals going into the boat two by two and he thought, oh that comes in the bible and suddenly he was prepared to accept that that phrase from the bible was a thousand years earlier than he thought it was mm. well that's where people get into trouble because they they tend to put artificial maximum ages on the bible stuff they think oh, it can't be any older than that. Well, let's face it. The copies we have of, of the Old Testament in Hebrew generally are from the year 1000 onwards or, you know, from the 900s onwards. 1000 BC. No, 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 a AD. AD. Um, now, there are some Greek copies of things earlier. There's Dead Sea Scrolls a bit earlier, which have bits of, of Genesis. But clearly, the content comes from a long, long time before that. And I, I think it, it's foolish to try and say, to put maximum ages on that. So I think this idea that the Bible, when it parallels stuff from Mesopotamia, has to have borrowed it, I think is, it needs to be questioned. Mm. All right, question number seven. Doesn't the Bible, especially the Old Testament, approve of, to quote one humanist website, outrageous cruelty and injustice? And that can be something that in our day and age makes it hard to accept as reliable. Yeah, and I'd say, uh, no, it doesn't. And the way I'd say that is you've got to read it like Jesus read it. So in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus was asked about divorce. And people said to him, look, Moses allowed divorce. And uh, or he, he, they even said, yeah, Moses said, write a certificate of divorce. And Jesus said, you've got to start at the beginning. In the beginning of the Bible, he made the male and female. And so, you know, what God has joined you don't separate and he, he has this method of reading the bible it's a really obvious method which is you start at the beginning mm. now read the stuff in the old testament you get violence you get slavery you get polygamy but is any of that at the beginning as god made it no god made it and it wasn't like that what you read from that point onwards after humans fall is you read how things shouldn't be mm. and let's say in the old testament you get lots of polygamy well when do you get polygamy well it, let's say with abraham when he doubts god's promise and therefore takes a second wife you get it with jacob because he's tricked his father uh his blind father that he's the older brother and so he gets his comeuppance where his father-in-law tricks him in the blindness of night that the older sister is the younger sister mm. that's what happens yeah. so he gets his comeuppance and he ends up polygamous, married to Leah and Rachel. And guess what? It's awful. Mm. There's a family dispute and Joseph's brothers are trying to kill him and then sell him. Um, these, these stories, are when you summarize them like this, they're just incredibly uh, crazy. Yeah, well, they, they tell you polygamy is a bad idea. Yeah. Look at David's life and his kids, you know, rape, murder, it's awful. So the Bible is showing you this is bad. Then you look at, say... The destruction of the Canaanites in the Old Testament. Because that's probably one that yeah, people yeah, would sure. point to. Is sure. That's a case where the Bible doesn't just record that this happened. It records God commanding his people to go 
slaughter right. all kinds of women and children. So you then you've got to look, look at it in the home context. Now I've got a whole talk on this where I look at sort of uh, 20 or so different factors to consider. And, you know, don't have time to do that on the podcast. But what I'd, I want to say is, firstly, you've got to read it in the light of the whole Bible. In the, the beginning of the Bible, God makes humans in the first place. He doesn't need to make any. He makes them because he is the living God and he always prefers giving life to taking it away. And so I would want to define goodness in an objective way. To be good is to be someone who always prefers the giving of life to taking it. And there is nothing in the Old Testament narrative which undermines that idea for God. Mm. That even in these points of judgment, God's reluctant on that. You've got to look at the narrative has the Canaanites are killing their own children. When you get to the book of Joshua, the camera, as it were, goes into slow motion with the very first Canaanite you woman you meet this woman Rahab who's a prostitute who is seeking after God and guess what the narrative will show how she gets rescued and her entire family and it will also show how before the the Canaanites are judged there are two remarkable miracles one is the drying up of the Red Sea the other one is the drying up of the Jordan and uh, what it says is when they meet Rahab in Joshua chapter 2, she says, we, that's not just her, but others around her, have heard what God's done drying mm. up the Red Sea. And then she recognizes that God is the God in heaven above and earth beneath, that she needs to follow him. Exactly the same you get in chapter 5, where the Canaanites have heard of the drying up of the Jordan. Guess what they decide to do? They decide to lock their gates and shut God out. And mm. so what you see is they're given this opportunity to repent and decide not to. So I'd want to say th- these are just some factors you've got to consider in the narrative that the narrative shows you how Rahab the Canaanite turns to Israel's side and is rescued. Achan, the Israelite, turns to Canaan's side and is destroyed. So in other words, it's showing mm. you what could have happened as well yeah, if right. other people had chosen. So that's just one of many factors where, again, you're getting this sense of God's heart. God is a God who always likes to give life. Yeah, but but there you have to hold in, in tension with that, the fact that he is just and that he, he will judge the wicked. Absolutely, yeah. Because he will, yeah. All right, another question. This kind of relates more broadly to what we just talked about. Doesn't the Old Testament portrayal of God differ significantly from the way the New Testament portrays God? Um, I would say no. Uh, so people sometimes just say, but there's more judgment and so on. God seems in angry the in the Old Testament, and then Jesus comes and he's all about love. Well, I'd say, you know, read the book of Revelation and the judgment there and recognize that no one spoke about the judgment of Gehenna more than Jesus himself. Mm. And I'd also want to point out that in some ways, if God was short-tempered, the Old Testament would be really quick. <laughs> you get to Genesis chapter 3, they take the fruit, and God said, that's it, I've had enough, you know, goodbye. Couldn't someone say the flood is an example of that, though? Well, what I think you've got in the Bible is you've got, uh, in the Old Testament, a number of foils where 
is destroying humans going to get rid of sin? No. Is confusing their language at Babel going to get rid of sin? No. Is choosing one person, Abraham, and privileging him going to get rid of sin? Choosing and privileging a nation, Israel, going to get rid of sin? Giving them law from Sinai, rescuing them from Israel, going to get rid of sin? Is giving them small government in the book of Judges going to get rid of sin? Is giving them big government in Samuel Kings going to get rid of king? Is uh, sending them to exile going to get rid of sin? No, none of that's going to get rid of sin. So God says, I'm going to come in and sort this out myself. And that's how you know, mm. he comes in in Christ. And I think that's how the Old Testament is a series of demonstrations of what will not get rid of sin. So it wasn't like God was actually trying those things and then surprised that they didn't work. You're not he, saying dem- that. he demonstrates to us that they don't work. Mm. But the, when I was saying, you know, the Old Testament could be an awful lot shorter, you just get to Genesis t- uh, 3 and then God just blots everyone and zaps them. And a book like Jeremiah is another case where it's almost like, you know, those parents who say, don't do that or I'll punish you to their child. And then the child does it and they say, well, don't do it. And I, I will punish you. They keep on threatening punishment and never actually do it. Uh, well, that, I mean, isn't the book of Jeremiah in some ways a bit like that? Mm. God keeps on. I mean, why is the book of Jeremiah so long? Yeah, all God, the people in Bible reading plans know that's yeah, a long I mean, book. he keeps on saying, do that and I'm going to judge you. And yet... Because of his love and his compassion and his long suffering, he doesn't do it instantly. And that's really the big theme in the Old Testament. God is saying he's going to punish and he delays and delays and delays for centuries. That's why it's so long and that's why you hear so much about judgment, just as you would with any parent who keeps on repeating to their child saying, don't do that or there will be consequences. Mm. All right, let's move fully into the New Testament. Another question how do we know that the authors of the Gospels didn't embellish the original stories about Jesus to make him fit into a, quote, messianic narrative that they were trying to push about him? Well, we can test them at various points. So we, we can at least test were they capable of telling correct stories and were they close enough to the time? If you say they embellished them, are you saying what well, all four Gospel writers embellished them? independently is is that the way it works there are some things that won't work for instance even from the talmud the jewish source jesus is executed on the eve of passover Hmm. so he is executed just at the time of the greatest jewish festival when jews are remembering their greatest delivery from egypt and they're sacrificing the passover lamb that's when it happens so that's recorded in the talmud that is yeah and also the fact that he's basically executed uh, in uh, Jerusalem uh, that's that's there in in the, the Jewish sources uh, I think the fact that it's happens under Pontius Pilate there are certain things you can do where actually you can say there are some uncanny things about what happens which you you can't just make up and then you take something like Jesus being born in Jerusalem could that be invented by Matthew or Luke in order to just like fit with the prophecy then you ask well when would it be invented so if jesus dies in the year 30 or 33 something like that when does someone invent that do they invent it in the year 40 okay so quite early on then you have a thing that well jesus's family his brothers are still alive some a brother like james is still leading in the church so is he on in on that and if you start going through it and think, okay, they invented it in the year 50 or the year 60 or the year 70, the later you get on, the harder it is to invent it because Christianity is spreading far and fast. Are you going to start telling all the Christians who are now spread across Turkey and Italy and so on, 
that you know you've been worshiping jesus and we've been telling you that he was born in nazareth actually he's born in bethlehem or were they not telling anyone where he was born and no one was remotely interested mm-hmm. i mean really does that explain how christianity would spread like no one's even bothered to know uh where their leader was born and they're putting their safety on the line for that i mean yeah it doesn't really explain a lot it's hard it's like it's uh, sometimes i think there's this vague sense that again this is kind of what we hear from the critics that there was some kind of early on a bunch of christians maybe the apostles or some of the disciples of jesus got together after his death and then kind of you know had this conspiracy that they built up and then through that it got pushed out and the ignorant masses just sort of accepted it as true and then it spread from there well i mean i think you've then got to say there's still things that are not explained so why when they do this would they have themselves written up so badly mm. i mean as in it's not as if the disciples come out very favorably in, not, none in, of in them the none of the other characters in no. the new testament i would say are like uh, uh, i mean yeah. the only people who come out favorably are the women may uh, you're going to have them as the conspirators uh, you know and they just manage to pull a fast one on the blokes so I think you start just getting into trouble the moment you start thinking of concrete scenarios. Yeah, how did this actually happen? Uh, and, yeah, the best thing is if you're going to have a message where you can present Jesus' triumphant to the world not to let him get arrested and killed in the first place. And if he is arrested and killed, you don't have long to come up with a message. And there are certain bits of it, again, you can't really fix. So, for instance... How does Jesus die? Well, he dies being crucified by the Romans. Well, that gives you as your climactic scene in the Gospels, Jesus on a tree. And that's the opening scene in the Bible where they take fruit from the tree and as a result, death comes into the world. So that's quite nice bookending of a story Mm. given that you know the christians couldn't control the first bit of the bible that was already written before their time jewish scriptures so are you really going to say that's just accident that that, do you get this nice story structure it just like pops out wow i mean that's amazing if if you, you could get that yeah and there's lots of examples like that yeah so maybe another related question here something that we often hear don't the new testament writers reinterpret the old testament often in ways that maybe ignore the original meaning to make it fit with jesus's life death and resurrection so i'd say uh that the new testament writers use um the old testament very intelligently and i think they're doing something which the old testament itself does which is use it somewhat typologically so for instance in the old testament you've got the exodus of israel from egypt but it's not just that you've got that. You've actually got a repeat of the Exodus at the time of the Babylonian exile, which is described in Exodus terms. And if you go back to Genesis 12 and Abraham's life, you've got a prequel. Yeah, there's a prequel there where he goes down into Egypt and the, uh, Pharaoh gets plagued, you know. just hmm. uh, and, and so Right, because uh, he, uh, takes, he takes his wife as... He takes, takes Abraham's exactly, wife as exactly. his wife. Yeah. So you've got all of this sort of uh, going on. And so, and then I would say that Christ's own death is described as an exodus in Luke's gospel. So you can have more than one exodus. And what the New Testament is doing is simply pointing out that same sort of mm. structure that you have in the Bible, that one thing can set up a pattern for another. And I, I would say that, yeah, the New Testament is using the Old Testament in a perfectly legitimate and correct way that's what's happening basically at the beginning of matthew's gospel where 
you've got Matthew chapter 1 is a genealogy of Jesus like the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. Matthew chapter 2 is him coming out of Egypt, going down to Egypt and coming out of Egypt, just like Israel does. Matthew chapter 3 is him fulfilling all righteousness in being baptized and that's again his his baptism is pointing for is fulfilling a pattern which already israel had in chapter five he's up a mountain giving the law like moses did Mm. so i'd want to say jesus's life follows the pattern of old testament stuff yeah wow all right question number 11 how can the bible truly be god's inerrant authoritative word when Christians so often disagree on what it means, wouldn't God have chosen a more reliable, objective method for revealing his will? Well, I think we've got to recognize that humans disagree about just about everything. <laughs> they disagree about pandemics. They disagree about politics. They disagree about, I mean, just all sorts of things. So please don't tell me because people disagree about something, therefore there's no truth. I mean, th- this is not going to get us mm. anywhere. Um, so the problem is humans, not necessarily that the is, Bible. That is a huge part of it. Yeah, yeah, that actually we can, humans are capable of making something that is perfectly clear, unclear. Uh, that's actually, we, we do it quite a lot. Uh, so I'd want to say that scripture is given in a morally structured way. So if you seek, you find. If you don't seek, you stumble. And God actually isn't trying to be maximally clear. That's important because God is revealing himself and hiding himself at the same time. That's what happens at the cross. So why why would he do that? A Christian might just be wondering very practically, why would God want to do that? Look, in Genesis 3, when humans sin, they are cast out of God's presence. God God doesn't show himself as clearly as he did before, and that's his prerogative. But also he's doing that so that people will seek him. So I think... God's clearest revelation, self-revelation, is at the cross, where he is showing his love. But this is the thing. You could stand underneath the cross, looking up and thinking, wow, this is really good evidence that the Romans are in charge. That guy on the cross is a loser. Mm. And so just at the moment when Which God... Many people actually had that exact Exactly. Response. And so yeah, he saved others, let him save himself. So in other words, God, at the point when he is revealing himself most clearly, people can take exactly the wrong thing from that. That is, again, because evidence is morally structured. So God in Scripture gives evidence for Scripture. He also gives you evidence against Scripture. That is, he is giving grounds which if someone is not going to seek him, they could use to say, you know, I, sh- I shouldn't seek him. I mean, mm. this is the thing. that You hear that mirrored even in comments about Jesus. I think of uh, in First Peter, Jesus is described as the cornerstone for mm-hmm. those who believe and also as a stumbling block for exactly. those who don't believe. So when Jesus comes to earth, he doesn't come showing all of God's glory in, in the fullest way. So John's gospel will say he revealed his glory, but it's not that like he had a dazzling, glittering face the whole time. So people say, ah, look. So that's where we need to recognize that God has chosen to reveal himself such that we should seek after him. Mm. It's so helpful. All right, maybe a last question. Question number 12. Uh, what should I do if I still have doubts about the reliability of the Bible? Well, I would say keep reading Scripture, keep praying, and talk to people about them. It may well be some people have doubts because their um, expectations are unrealistic. So they've been set up to think of Scripture needs to be unproblematic. 
scriptural needs to be able to be understood on my first reading there's gonna be no difficulties in it well if you're set up with false expectations you guess what you're gonna be disappointed mm. but i think if you uh, accept that uh scripture can be full of puzzles and that's actually a nice challenge that god's given us so that we seek after him that's uh, much more helpful so i do think uh, there can be a problem with apologetics apologetics can sometimes be more like hard sales yeah where people are trying to push people yeah. to get on board and accept something and sometimes do you ever feel like it over promises stuff perhaps at times yeah, absolutely uh, and so i think there are problems with that sort of approach to apologetics and and people need to see it as, as rather that we just need to tell it how it is uh and present god as he's presented himself hmm. Well, Peter, thank you so much for helping us to, to think through some of these common questions that I'm sure many of us uh, have wrestled with ourselves. Uh, we appreciate it. Real pleasure. That was Peter Williams on tough questions about the reliability of the Bible. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Can We Trust the Gospels? Pick up your copy of the print book for 30% off or get the ebook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. That really helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.